You're listening to Something Real with Pastor Rich Zeiger and Stacy Cozio, connecting the reality of God to the realities of life. Thanks for joining us. Hey, looks like we've got all three uh, platforms going here. So uh, welcome to uh, Something Real, a real life podcast. And uh, if you've been with us before, then you know that it's unusual to see just this ugly mug here on the screen. And uh, Stacy's not able to be with us today. Uh, so uh, in the interest of getting some content out, um, I said, hey, let's, uh, let's give it a shot here trying to trying to do a solo episode uh if you've been here since the beginning oh so long ago then you'll know that this is where we started out and we decided that it's much better with uh with a partner on here with both of us and so uh that's why stacy is hosting this podcast and i'm just here to uh to give some thoughts in relationship to the sermons that we talked about so anyway without further ado we are in numbers 27 this week and uh, if you come here for the pop culture references, uh, I apologize, there won't be quite as many without Stacy here. Uh, but we, if you come here for the Bible content, then hopefully we'll be uh, just as faithful as usual. And uh, I don't know, I don't, <laughs> I'll try to be more focused and concise than what I might uh, ordinarily be. So in, in any case, as we are, um, as we're working through Numbers 27. We took this in two uh, two parts, uh, two sermons. We didn't get to podcast last week. That's why I wanted to make sure we get some content up this week. Uh, if you do follow our podcast on Facebook or YouTube or um, on the Anchor Spotify app or wherever you listen to podcasts in the audio form, uh, then you probably will recognize that, that we post the sermon itself uh, during the week. And uh, so that went up today. Uh, so you should have the Passing the Torch sermon there, as well as last week's Daughters of Faith in the first half of Numbers. So as we're looking at this, we're continuing on this journey uh, through the book of Numbers. And, and we've gotten to the place now where the new generation uh, has uh, come. They're about to enter the promised land. Um, God has dealt with the entire previous generation, the unfaithful generation, uh, we just had in chapter 26 a second census. So where the book of Numbers starts out with the census here uh, in 26, then we see a second census of the new generation and no one except for Caleb and Joshua, who was counted in the first census, is also counted in the second because they've all uh, died in the wilderness. So now with this new generation, God is preparing them uh, to be able to go in. And before this happens, we have uh, a bit of narrative here in, in chapter 27, we'll see uh, over the next couple of chapters, um, God reintroducing or, or, or reminding the people uh, of the laws regarding offerings and festivals. Moses will speak to them about that. But before we get to that spot, we're going to see two distinct stories that are, are connected and part of this next step in moving us forward. Uh, in the first half of Numbers 27, uh, we see this interesting story about the daughters of a man named Zelophehad. Uh, and Zelophehad is, uh, is a man who died in the wilderness but did not have sons. And so the inheritance of the land was to transfer through the sons. And so these, uh, these 
five daughters that he has uh, that are all that's left to carry on his name uh, say, hey, what about our dad? You know, he, he didn't he wasn't part of Korah's rebellion. So, you know, the Lord hasn't uh, dictated that that his line would be cut off. He died for his own sin, like everybody else in the wilderness whose generations continue. And so they come and approach Moses and the leaders and, and you know, through them approach the Lord uh, to seek this uh, inheritance. And then in the second half of, of this chapter, uh, verses 12 to 23, we see the Lord telling Moses that he's not going to get to take the people into the promised land. He's brought them this far. He's, he's brought them all the way uh, to, the, to the, the verge of it, the, the very uh, edge, and he's going to take them up to it, and then he's going to die uh, up on the mountain, which is exactly what the Lord told him back in chapter 20 when Moses and Aaron uh, went rogue, if you will. Uh, the Lord said, speak to the rock and water will flow. They went and uh, kind of, you know, it appears that they kind of lost their temper, or Moses uh was upset with the people and, and kind of, in a sense, took credit for what God was going to do himself. And more specifically, he disobeyed. The Lord said, speak to the rock. Instead, he took his staff and struck the rock. And it, while that may, on the one hand, seem like, you know, well, that's not that big of a deal, uh, it was a huge deal because it didn't honor God as holy before the people. And so as God um, uh, said to them at the time, Look, because you didn't do this, God, God still did what he was going to do. He still brought water for the people. What he uh, told Moses and Aaron, however, is you don't get to go in because of this. And uh, that gives us a pretty clear picture of God's higher expectation of those who represent him in leadership uh, as opposed to those who follow. And uh, we see that in this part of the narrative as well. So God tells Moses, you know, you don't get to go in. Moses prays, Lord, uh, appoint someone to lead these people so they won't be like sheep without a shepherd. They need someone to bring them in. And uh, the Lord instructs him specifically on what to do to appoint uh, Joshua, son of Nun, who has been Moses' assistant through all of this and is one of the two spies that went into Caleb into Canaan along with Caleb and brought back uh, a good report, whereas the uh, the other 10 spies uh, of the 12 did not. They, they came back and said, yeah, it's awesome, but God's not big enough to handle this for us. Let's go back to Egypt. Uh, and uh, that was when the generation was uh, condemned, sentenced to... Uh, spend the rest of their days wandering in the wilderness for, for the 40 years until they return. So now this new generation is going in. Zelophehad's daughters don't have any rights to, uh, to the inheritance, and yet they seek the inheritance anyway by faith in God. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Moses, on the other hand, uh, who has been so faithful and has done, uh, done all these things, failed to do right in the situation um, in chapter 20 at, at Meribah Kadesh, where, uh, where he struck the rock. And so Moses will not come into the land. These uh, women who do not have a legal right will come in by God's decree. 
and, and he establishes a, a legal right for them. And Moses, uh, who by all expectations absolutely looks like he should, uh, because he failed to honor God as holy, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't lose his standing in the covenant, but he does lose his opportunity to finish the job that God had assigned to him. And so as we see this play out, um, we kind of took it in, in two halves. And looking at verses 1 to 11, uh, the, uh, the daughters of Zelophehad, we saw the core reality that because God is faithful, there's hope for the powerless in a world of injustice. It's not hard for us to look around and see that, that injustice is everywhere. We deal with hardship. We deal with difficulty, pain, suffering, uh, corruption, sin. We live in a fallen world. And because of sin in the world, injustice is ubiquitous. It's, it's everywhere we look. And so there were a few things that we saw specifically in the passage that we wanted to pay attention to. And the first thing we see in uh, verses 1 to 11 is the character of the Lord that God is faithful to his sovereign purpose, his covenant promises, and his loving justice. So because, uh, because God's character is what it is, he, uh, he remains faithful to the purpose that he had in the first place. When God determined uh, from all eternity that he was going to bring these people into the promised land, and he promised them because of their covenant relationship with him that he would bring them into the promised land, he carries this out. It doesn't stop. And he also demonstrates his loving justice, that uh, that God sees men and women of equal value, uh, different in role, but absolutely equal in value. And so he doesn't leave. Um, it, many folks look at this and might see a, a, a women's liberation passage. And, and there's an element of that here. But Mainly what we see is a justice passage for uh, Zelophehad. The, the daughters are looking for Zelophehad's justice. How can, how can our father's name pass away from Israel? Um, and so they're seeking God's justice for their father and the family line. And God demonstrates his faithfulness uh, throughout that. Now, when we see the character of the Lord in it, we also recognize the character of the women. There's something specifically um, faithful in these daughters of Zelophehad, so, hence the title, Daughters of Faith. They, they trust God. They're approaching this whole situation as if it's already done. They haven't come into the promised land yet, but their faith in God, that God will deliver them, puts them in a situation where they are just assuming that when God said it, it's a done deal. So they are trusting that that they will go into the land. They're trusting that they will overcome the enemies, the giants that were in the land that frightened away their parents' generation. Uh, they, they are trusting also that God's character is faithful and just and loving, and that when they come, uh, they will not see in God an, an unjust, capricious uh, God. So they come with this um, wholehearted devotion that they they believe God is going to give them what they seek, which is only rational and logical if, if we don't believe that the one we petition is going to grant our petition, then we would then not 
choose to petition him. And we see in this passage that those who believe the Lord wholeheartedly will seek the Lord boldly. And we're reminded of uh, through this of Luke 18, when Jesus um, told this story, this uh, this parable, if you will, about uh, the persistent widow or the the naggy prayer, if you if you can use that term without being overly crass. Uh, the, the woman is is appealing her case to an unjust judge, and she keeps on uh, going back and going back and going back and going back and pushing and pushing until finally this unjust judge who doesn't fear God, uh, it, does, it doesn't fear man, he has no regard for uh, anybody else's opinion, uh, he's not a just and godly individual, but finally he says, man, if I don't grant this woman's request, she's going to drive me nuts. She's going to wear me out with her pleading. So he finally gives in and grants her request. And, and the point the Lord is making is this is how we should approach God. And if this unjust judge is willing to, uh, to acquiesce to this persistent petition, this persistent prayer, how much more so the Lord who loves us and wants to give us good gifts and is gracious and kind uh, in, in blessing his children, how much more will the Lord who, who actually wants to do good to us and is always just, how much more will he respond to our persistent prayers? So it's a call for us to continue to pray, um, not to just you know, show, you know, throw up a prayer and then give up on it. So instead, keep on knocking, keep on asking, keep on seeking, uh, and the Lord will, um, as we do this, we trust that the Lord will deliver, deliver us. I can't even talk without Stacy. So anyhow, uh, as we look at the character of the women, we see that, that they wholeheartedly uh, believe God, therefore they boldly seek the Lord's favor. We also notice that the limits of our action, uh, the limits of our actions reflect the limits of our belief. Uh, Hebrews 11, uh, starting with verse 1, talks about faith, and, and, and all the way through it gives this, um, this litany of Old Testament saints who lived by faith. None of them were perfect. All of them were sinful. Some of them just egregiously and horrifically so. But they all lived according to faith, and they did not necessarily, any of them, receive the promise in their lifetime, but they held out hope that God would, would deliver. And so when God delivers them and, and, and grants requests, it's, be, it's on the basis of faith, not on the basis of their earning it. And yet uh, the writer of Hebrews points out that even even when they died, even when they went to the grave, they were still looking for uh, for God's promise to come in eternity, uh, and yet they lived according to faith. And so Hebrews eleven six was a, a verse I remember memorizing back in in the nineties when I was in the Air Force uh, from an old Billy Graham tool uh, for memorization that. Uh, that without faith, it's impossible to please God for he who comes to God must believe that, that he is, that God exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so these women, we see their character of faith in that they come, if they had not come, if they then, or if they had 
come meekly. I don't know if God's going to grant this. That would tell us a lot about where their faith is. Uh, but because they believed in God and believed God was a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, that he was just and that he was good, uh, their trust in God's character led to their seeking him. And as they, uh, as they do that, we can, we can make that connection for ourselves as well. If, if you and I, in our prayer life, go into it doubting whether God is able to answer or doubting whether God is good and just and willing to answer our prayers uh, that are um, that are for His His in, in Christ's name on His behalf that are according to God's will. If we don't think that God is just and good and that He is able and great, then we're not going to seek him wholeheartedly. We're going to seek him, uh, you know, hedging our bet, you know, constantly praying, uh, but not in that persistent manner, demanding, which sounds disrespectful, but please take the context, not really intending that as a disrespect, but but Lord, deliver me, Lord, deliver me, continuing, continuing to come. As, as that person comes to the Lord, they come because they believe he will grant the request. If we are constantly asking, oh, I sure hope that the Lord will, will give me what I need. Lord, save me. You know, and we will throw out there, thy will be done, but it's really lip service because we're not interested in God's will. We're just kind of using it as a hedge uh, in case God doesn't give us what we want. Now we have an out. God doesn't need an out. God answers prayer as he deems best. And so it is appropriate for us to pray, Lord, not my will, but your will. Not as an out, not as a, as a hedge, but specifically because our will is to do his will and to seek his will first, following the same example as our Lord Jesus. The third thing we see in this section, verse 1 through 11, is the character of God's law. We see the character of the Lord. We see the character of the women. We see the character of the law. And when we consider uh, the nature and character of God's law, Psalm 119 is, is kind of the go-to place uh, to look at, at the very uh, beautiful, life-giving, uh, exciting nature of God's law. And David writes this longest of the Psalms, longest chapter in the Bible, uh, essentially as a love song to God's word, to, to look at the law of God, say, Lord, I love your law. It makes me wiser than my teachers. It makes me wiser than my peers. You know, it's because of your law uh, that I can stay on the right path. How do I keep my way pure? By clinging to your law. It's a, 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 a lamp. It's a light. It guides me. Uh, even when I wander and go astray, even when I fail, I still trust your law and your law is my hope. So we see in how God uh, unveils this, that there is, um, there is a, a life-giving beauty to it. As God reveals his law here, he's following a pattern that he does elsewhere as well. He gives the law in chunks, small chunks, and then he develops that in larger pieces. And along the way, he progressively reveals it through things like case law, if you will. That's that's what we're seeing here. Here's the the uh, the pattern of inheritance that's been laid out already in Leviticus. And now 
uh, here's a situation where that doesn't seem to fit. Is God's law incomplete? No, but he hasn't revealed this part until it comes up. If God were to give us everything all at once, we could our brains would just explode. There's too much for us to be able to process. So God graciously reveals his, his law, his will, his word to us uh, progressively, uh, which in a sense is why the more we read the Bible, we can read the same passage uh, for 20 years in, in the 20th year, still be getting something fresh and new from it. Not a, a new insight, not a new interpretation. That's a, a big difference. God's word has one right interpretation. It means what God intended it to mean through the intent of the original author as his spirit guided and inspired. But at the same time, I don't see everything that God intended for that verse the first time through or the second time through. I don't have God's brain. I have to keep on working and developing and learning. And so uh, that progressive revelation means that when I read a Bible verse or a Bible passage at five years old, 10 years old, I, I can understand it and I can gain from it. At 15 years old, I can gain something else. At 25, 35, 45, 85 years old, there is still more depth. I'm just uncovering more of what's already there, kind of like an archaeologist. You're not planting things in the ground. You're uncovering what's already there. You dig, you discover. And uh, God unveils these things to us progressively. So in this, uh, in this instance, that's what we're seeing is God is revealing a new, uh, uh, a new application, if you will, of the same law in uh, allowing the the daughters of men without sons to re receive that inheritance. And then he describes how that would go down the family line to be able to, to carry that out. What we see in this is that the Lord's commands preserve his gracious intent to bless his people. It's part of his covenant relationship with his people. And as we look at the book of Numbers, all of this, we need to see it through the lens of covenant. This is all about the relationship specifically. It's not about... Um, you know, how well these individuals keep the law or they would have all been wiped out in the first place, uh, which, you know, God offered to do and to restart through Moses and Moses, uh, you know, along the way at numerous points prayed on behalf of the people for, for God to not destroy them, even though destruction is what they earned. But because of God's covenant relationship, he was never going to abandon his people completely. He did uh, you know, pass his judgment on the rebellious generation because there is a cost to our unfaithful choices, but God remains faithful at all times to his covenant promises. So his commands, his law, preserve his gracious intent to bless his people. It's undeserved, but it is God's intent. We also see that the Lord's commands affirm different roles and equal value for men and women. Men and women are not the same, but they, uh, but they are equal. And if you don't know that, then you haven't been paying attention to science or experience. You've probably been paying attention to headlines that tell you that we're all the same and there's no difference and we can pick and choose and gender is fluid and all that kind of stuff. But we see, you know, all the way back in Genesis, uh, in Genesis 1, that God created male and female. He created each one of us in his image and he created us gendered male and female. 
And that's a good thing. It was a, it was a good thing then. It's a good thing now. God makes us who he wants us to be, and he makes us different. That does not mean that that one of us is is lesser or like animal farm. All all are equal, but some are more equal than others. That's not reality. But there are different roles, and so God doesn't usurp the the tradition or the the commands that He had previously given. Um, what He does say is, when when that uh, particular standard operation doesn't fit, then here's what we do: we go we go this direction, um, and we see justice for the women. That's a, a constant thing. That's the third thing that we see here is that the Lord's commands offer justice when there seems to be no hope. These women did not have uh, a leg to stand on. The, the men in the society held all the power. That uh, was the, the natural flow of things, the, the legal flow of things. So they, they didn't really have any claim, any leg to stand on. But the Lord came to their defense. The Lord said, okay, here's what we're going to do and revealed his heart progressively through this case law to show that his commands offer justice uh, even when there's no hope. And, and that's uh, kind of the hallmark that we see of all of God's law. And when we're uh, in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, there's a constant focus on God's heart for those who are powerless, who are outsiders, the alien stranger, the orphan, the widow. Uh, God seeks to take care of them. Uh, James one twenty seven points out that that uh, religion that God considers pure and faultless is the kind of religion that actually looks after widows and orphans, uh, not just giving lip service. So that you know that whole picture of what's going on there in the with the daughters of Zelophehad points out that because God is faithful, there's hope for the powerless in a world of injustice. Now we're running short on time, so I won't spend quite as much time on um, on the second part, um, verses twelve to twenty-three. But in this passing the torch aspect here, we see that in, in contrast to God giving the daughters of Zelophehad an inheritance that they would not uh, have on their own, he now tells Moses the inheritance that Moses ought to have, the, 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 the privilege of leading God's people into the promised land, has been removed from him because of the fact that he did not do what God told him to do. He didn't lead God's people uh, God's way for God's glory in that in that moment at Meribah Kadesh in the desert of Zin. So uh, that's kind of problematic for us sometimes because we feel like, you know, we should weigh our things on the scale. And Moses was a pretty good leader. He did all these wonderful things. But God holds his his leaders, those who represent him to a, a high standard. Um, the standard for all of us is perfection. And the only reason we are not destroyed is God's grace. Every single one of us earns death and hell and separation from the giver of life because of our sin. No one deserves anything else. But God gives us life and breath through his common grace, he gives us joys in, in this temporal world, and he gives us an opportunity to uh, be a part of his family because of his great love for us, demonstrated through Christ while we were yet sinners. As we look at what happens here with Moses and Joshua, we see that God's shepherd must lead God's people God's way for God's glory. 
God's shepherd must lead God's people God's way for God's glory. So as Moses has been leading them in this instance in chapter 20, and this is the crux, this is where, where everything really uh, comes home for him, he failed to, to fear God, to reveal God as holy to the people. And in usurping God's authority in that moment, God, God didn't cast him out. He doesn't say you're going to be cut off from your people, but he does say you're not going to get to finish this job here. So in, um, in verses 12 and 13, uh, well, 12 through 14, uh, we read, The Lord said to Moses, this is NIV 84, as we know, heaven's preferred translation. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, Go up this mountain in the Abarim range and see the land I have given to the Israelites. Notice these, it hasn't happened yet, but God has given it past tense, even though they're not in there yet. After you've seen it, verse 13, you too will be gathered to your people. Notice that phrase, you'll be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. Aaron died in the previous chapter, in, a, in an earlier chapter. Um, for when the community rebelled at the waters in the desert of Zin, the community was in rebellion. That's why God was bringing water out of the rock. Both of you, Aaron and Moses, disobeyed my command to honor me as holy before their eyes. These were the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the desert of Zin. So when this happened, um, they failed to, uh, to um, what do I want to say, to, to uh, demonstrate through their obedience uh, the goodness of God. I'm going to... Um, I'm going to just real quick uh, sign off from Anchor and, and just say as, as we see this play out, we'll, we'll continue for a moment on YouTube and Facebook. Uh, so those of you listening uh, to the audio, thanks for joining us. Um, God's shepherd here uh, has the uh, responsibility of representing God to the people. Moses failed in that. Joshua is going to succeed in that. We're going to see uh, the 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 faithfulness of Joshua in, in the book of Joshua. We've got another book in between that's kind of Moses' song, swan song. Uh, but for now, uh, we see that, that this passing of the torch is how God's name is honored as we do this. So uh, thanks.